Welcome to the Crisis Podcast. My name is Travis Atkinson, and I am your host. Join me as we discover the people behind the services and systems that treat and care for those experiencing a mental health crisis. What's up, everybody? So glad you're here. This is Travis Atkinson with the Crisis Podcast. It's it's good. It's good to do every every episode. Every time I'm I'm putting these together, and I'm thinking about y'all that are working in the field, or you've you've uh, received crisis services before, or if you got family members that do. Uh, it's just a joy. It's a joy to be bringing you another episode. And before I do, I've got a couple announcements to make. One is, if you haven't given our podcast a rating, please go ahead and do that. Uh, A lot of our listeners are on Apple Podcasts, but we have listeners on Spotify. And we've got listeners now, not just in the United States, but in about eight or nine other countries, which is awesome. And we passed the 2,000 spins uh, threshold about a month ago. So thank you to everyone who's been listening. Uh, that goes a long way, and, and we hope that it's been a meaningful experience for you. There's a webinar series that just started last week that's called Mythbusters, and it's about uncovering the truths in behavioral health crisis care. Now, I am moderating that webinar along with a number of crisis organizations as sponsors, including uh, NASCOD, the Crisis Residential Association, the American Association of Suicidology, and the International Council for Helplines. So check those organizations' websites as well as my Facebook page to get uh, the details. But the webinars, the last two are May 6th and May 27th from 1 to 2.30 Eastern. Also, to let you know, the dates have been set for the 2021 Crisis Residential Conference, which is taking taking place in person in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, the second week in October. So go to crisisresidentialassociation.org to learn more details. There's sponsorship opportunities. Uh, The call for presentations will be posted here in the next two weeks or so. All right, on to the podcast. I am lucky to have uh, my guest, Beverly Reiskamp, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Network 180, which is one of the largest community mental health organizations in the state of Michigan. Uh, Beverly brings just a wealth of knowledge and experience. She's going to talk about legislative advocacy. She's going to talk about her story. And uh, I just can't wait for you to, uh, to hear it. I had a really uh, great time talking to Beverly and and getting to know her even a little bit more. So without further ado, here is Beverly Reiskamp. Beverly Reiskamp, welcome to the Crisis Podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So the first question that I ask all of my guests is, what do you do and why do you do it? Uh, Well, my title is Chief Operating Officer. I work at an organization called Network 180, and we are a community mental health authority in Michigan. So it's a unit of local government. We're part of Michigan's public mental health system. And... um, I've been there for about 10 years. The first nine years, I was involved in a lot of special projects. And um, crisis has been dubbed a special project, which is probably, (laughs) you know, not where we want it to be. We want it to be not special. We want it to be this is something that is core to all of our business. But that's how I first got exposed and got got working on crisis projects. And um, it's carried through even into... um, chief operating officer land because it remains front and center. So when you say special projects, uh, does that mean that you've been asked during your tenure at, at Network 180 to engage like pilots, things that haven't been done before or process improvement? And is that 
is that something that you're drawn to, to doing something that nobody's done before or to do, do something off the grid or, you know, off the, the beaten path? Yeah, I think it is um, kind of to my surprise. I, I took a job in special projects because it was the job that they were offering. <laughs> and I was a little nervous about it, you know. Um, but it turned out to be the the best work in the organization is really? the work that's about the new things and about solving oh. the problems that haven't been solved. And um, now looking back on it, I think it'd be hard to not be working on solving the problems and the innovation because um, that's where you really end up touching the most people. Okay. So I have learned a lot from you. We live in the same community and, and sometimes attend some of the same meetings. Um, I've learned a lot from you about how the behavioral health system works and, and about like function. So for those people who don't live in Michigan, could you help us to understand what is Network 180's place in the community mental health system? You know, how many, how many Network 180 equivalents are there in the state? And, and what are you responsible for? Are you a payer? Are you a provider? Are you both? What does that look like? Sure thing. And, and um, right back at you, I've learned a lot from you about how crisis works across the country. So it's been, it's been fun to be touch points for each other, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the community mental health system in Michigan has about, I want to say 46 or so community mental health organizations, and they're typically tied to counties. In some cases, um, multiple counties are covered by the same organization based mm -hmm. on, you know, the population that's covered. And the, the goal with the CMH system originally I believe this was before I started working in it, but <laughs> it was to support the large scale um, community based support of individuals who may have previously been institutionalized. So that was sort of the heart and soul of it when it was launched many, many decades ago. And so there's in, in Michigan, too, it's sort of um, an unusual setup in that the community mental health system. Um, integrate service for those individuals who have serious mental illness, for individuals who have um, substance use disorder and need services for that, um, and individuals who have an intellectual or developmental disability. So that, that group of three different service populations and service needs is a little unusual, I think, particularly the inclusion of the IDD population. But I think it brings lots of opportunity, too, because... People, um, people aren't in boxes, right? So yeah. we have lots of people who are touching all three parts of it at once and things like that. So yeah, the service array is, is really about community-based care. Um, it's about targeted case management and therapy and peer supports. And those kinds of things can be delivered in different constellations. But um, it's about supporting people in community settings so they can live in as integrated a way as possible. So I know that in other states, what what, I, what is described as a CMH, um, it, it, it takes on a, a, just a little different language. In Virginia, they call them CSBs or Community Services Boards. In Ohio, they call them Adam H Boards, which I think is like uh, addiction drug. Gosh, guessing on acronyms in mental health is a dangerous game, so I'm not going to go there. <laughs> but Adam H Boards, and you talked about how. Um, there are 46 of these community mental health uh, centers or, or authorities in Michigan, and some have uh, multi-county oversight or, you know, they, they provide this service. But Network 180 is one county that, of service. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Network 180 is one county. And also a significant dynamic in this county but also throughout the state is that a lot of times these community mental health organizations are working with a variety of contracted partners too. So that's very much the case with Network 180 in Kent County. We have services that we direct deliver, and then we work with a whole host of nonprofit organizations. We also work with, you know, the full gamut of services all the way up to, you know, hospitals for the highest end needs, and then some some pretty um, some pretty low intensive needs for people who just need to touch base every once in a while with a peer or a coach. Okay. We hear this word in crisis services a lot called safety net. What does I imagine that as as a, a community mental health uh, authority or entity, 
Network 180 has these safety net responsibilities. What does that include or what does that mean in Michigan? It's a great question. I think that word gets thrown around a lot and a lot of people are are scratching their heads sometimes going, <laughs> what exactly does that mean? I think sometimes it's referring to the, um, the population uh, because in Michigan, the CMH system is primarily targeting and funded and charged to serve individuals with Medicaid or without insurance. So okay. sometimes it's shorthand for that. I think um, more importantly, the way Michigan set up their system, they charged that crisis services, particularly for those funded by Medicaid or not insured, are um, the responsibility of the community mental health system. And of course, you know, I'm sure you talk about this all the time, crisis can look so different and the service array can look so different. I think traditionally, the way it's looked in Michigan is we had pre-screening units that sort of determined whether someone needed hospitalization if they were in crisis. And then the job was, if they did, to authorize that hospitalization and work on the care coordination around it. There were a lot of other opportunities, of course, as we're all talking about and discovering right now, that were not built into that original CMH infrastructure. And that's where the opportunity presents. You know, what else can we build out so that there's a real continuum of service as opposed to basically if you're in crisis, you go to the hospital. Um, That's been the default. So the crisis services that are available in Michigan which are expanding, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. You've got these access centers or these crisis call centers where people can can talk to someone and hopefully get de-escalated from their crisis. You have these mobile crisis teams, or for youth in Michigan, they're called intensive crisis stabilization teams, ICS. Uh, You have these crisis residential programs, which are like a home-like setting. Is it safe to say that if a person has Medicaid or if they're covered um, without having insurance, and they go into crisis, they have a better benefit than you and I might have on our commercial health insurance, more access to evidence-based services. Yeah, that is how it is in Michigan. The Medicaid benefit, um, you know, there's some pros and cons to this, but it's been established for a long time in Michigan for behavioral health, and um, it's it's quite robust in some ways. So they, they're, Medicaid has funded for a long time steps in the continuum that really haven't existed for people with other insurance. A lot of people find that kind of surprising. Yeah, people would think that there's maybe this this um, gradual step up where, you know, a commercial HMO or PPO is like going to be the gold standard, but when it comes to behavioral health, sometimes that script is flipped, and people people don't realize that, that sometimes their health insurance is not providing all of the services that that evidence-based research has shown could help a person in a crisis. Yeah, it's it's surprising for a lot of people, even people who are in the field, you know, when they compare what it looks like to get care if you're in a crisis and you have a commercial plan versus a um, Medicaid. So I want to talk about this service that is underdeveloped in Michigan relative to some other states, and that is this idea of a place for people to go instead of an emergency department or sometimes in lieu of a psychiatric hospital, they go by many names. They go by crisis stabilization unit. They go by psychiatric urgent care. Um, and, and you've had uh, quite a, uh, a level of involvement in starting to change that conversation through some legislative advocacy. Tell us about House Bill 5832. Did I get it right? Yes. Check check my tattoo here. Uh, House Bill 5832. And what does that mean? And let's just, I'd love to hear a little bit about the story of it, like how it came to be and, and what impact it could have on Michigan's crisis infrastructure. Yeah. So as a lot of other states have found, and sometimes they've been ahead of Michigan in getting to these crisis alternatives, um, for various reasons, but um, but there were a lot of other states to look to as examples for this. Uh, it's possible to treat many people experiencing behavioral health crisis successfully and safely, uh, at least in terms of stabilizing the crisis in a 24-hour period, sometimes a 48-hour period, if the person gets what they need right away when they need it. Hmm. They get access to experienced clinicians, um, psychiatry, 
Uh, they very often can stabilize and will very often need, of course, um, really strong community-based services following up, but very often can stabilize without the need for a hospitalization if you get to them with what they need when they need it, right? So this is really intriguing because what we see in our community and I think is really common is when people go into crisis here, at least historically, they very often wind up in one of two settings that are about the worst possible place you could be if you're experiencing a crisis. One is the jail, actually, because um, one thing that happens when people go into crisis and they don't know where else to call is they call the police. And if, you know, of course, what's discovered is going on borders on a legal infraction and there's nowhere else to go, people wind up being jailed. So that's, a, of course, a horrible result. If, if you're already in crisis and a lot of people who have trauma histories are triggered by involvement with law enforcement and then you go into a very restrictive setting, of course, where you actually are giving up your, your liberty, that is one of the worst places you can wind up. But it unfortunately happens um, and has happened with way more frequency than, than we want. And the other place is the emergency department, where, again, um, I want to make clear, I don't want to fault any of the professionals who are involved in delivering these mm -hmm. healthcare services or, or the public safety services. People are doing the best they have with what they have to work with. But yeah. this whole effort is about giving, giving communities more to work with, you know, giving them what they need to actually respond in an effective way. So, yeah, hospitals or emergency departments in particular, as you know, I'm sure this this topic comes up in a lot of different places. Again, they're often trying to respond the very best way they can to someone who has a behavioral health crisis, but the settings are not conducive to behavioral health care. It's often loud, crowded, fluorescent lights, and the care yes. professionals are, they're medical professionals, so they're responding to mostly the medical side, because that's what, you know, that's what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So, and then often what happens is people are waiting for a psychiatric bed. So we enter this psychiatric boarding situation that, again, happens a lot across the whole country. But somebody could be waiting for um, usually hours, often days, sometimes weeks, if, especially if, it's a particularly complex case, which, so it's, it's like a double whammy, you know, the harder the and the more complex the situation is the harder it is to locate a psychiatric hospital who will take the person so you have you have these two settings and people instead of getting better in those settings usually if they start out in crisis they're usually getting worse in those settings because the the crisis isn't getting treated it's you know people are they're getting a response but it's not a response that helps stabilize I've I've heard one way to describe that that harmful experience as iatrogenic harm. The harm that the system that's trying to help you is sometimes unintentionally causing. Yeah. Where where you know you, you hit it right in the head and, and Dr. Scott Zeller says this. He says nobody having a behavioral health emergency should have to have it in an emergency room. It's just inherently not it's not good. It's not designed for that. Um, and then to boot, uh, we won't get in too much to this, but there are laws that the hospitals have to follow, such as EMTALA laws, which means they can't discharge a person until they're going to the next appropriate level of care. And if these crisis stabilization units don't exist, then they have to wait for a psych hospital bed to open up. And the person could be there for days. And instead of initiating therapeutic conversations, the message is often to uh, a frontline staff or, uh, to, or a sitter uh, is d don't talk to them and make sure they don't hurt themselves when they're in the room. If I was agitated or if I was lonely or depressed, the last thing I would want is someone in a room staring at me and not talking to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's tragic because everyone is doing the best, but we haven't equipped communities with um, all the possibilities so that we can do better. You're bringing up a good point that none of these conversations are an indictment on people's actions, that we, are in, we have to honor that in some ways we're all doing the best that we can. But I get the sense from what you've already said a little bit that you're, you probably are uh, – uh, you know a little bit about the history of the behavioral health system, and we also know that we haven't always done a good job. 
and that we failed a lot of people. And so if, we, if that is our past resume, we have to really be careful about what we're doing now and not just think that, that time somehow made us better. But in fact, that like we have to actively do that step of the, um, uh, the, the 12-step model, uh, the, the fearless moral inventory. You know, we need to ask ourselves, is this, are, are we being the most helpful? That's exactly it. And one of the one of the risks of having one of the more robust and established community mental health systems in Michigan is that I think sometimes it's just very easy to get caught up in maintaining what exists and um, you know trying to meet the regulatory requirements and deliver what has been established and is cemented instead of asking what's needed now because that thing that we built 20 years ago, 30 years ago is probably not the very best we can do right now. Mm-hmm. So how do you how do you identify those gaps and then try to fill them? So I imagine these conversations have been going on in Michigan for a while about how do we make improvements, how do we uh, impact the ED boarding issue or not have enough psychiatric hospital beds. Tell us about how we get to this bill or you know conversations that transpire about about building a new type of care. So this is where um, we started to think about, okay, how can we do something that's more like what we've eventually named a crisis stabilization unit? That's the title that went into the um, legislation. And it was interesting because there there are some pioneers who have been doing this in Michigan. And um, they were doing it because when the Michigan Mental Health Code was written, it included some language that set up something like today's modern day crisis units, but it was 30 years ago or whatever. And so, right, the language that was in there isn't quite exactly what you would want to run, you know, a a service um, similar to what we're seeing crop up in other states because it was 30 years ago. No one really anticipated this, but there was enough language in there to create something called a pre-screening unit. And that was a place where law enforcement could drop somebody off and other people could walk there voluntarily or what have you. And it was, again, that place where the public system could evaluate somebody, okay, you know, do you need hospitalization or not? So that was the bedrock of it. And, um, you know, some organizations went ahead and kind of took it and ran with it and said, okay, we've got, we've got some foundation here. We want to do it a little bit different because it's a modern era. So we're going to, you know, build some features onto this that weren't written in the code, but we're happy to have something there. And this is such a critical service. We're going to do it because it's the right thing to do for people. And um, plenty of other people had their eye on that, but they were nervous about certain provisions that were not spelled out in the code because what we're talking about doing is treating people in a better way when they're at a very vulnerable place. Mm. And a lot of risk is involved if what we're saying is we think we could have better results for everybody if this was less restrictive. Well, when you know when you decide that that is the way to go, then there's always liability questions and risk questions about, all right, if we're going to step this down into a less secure type setting or something that doesn't last as long, then people are concerned about, okay, no one's ever done this before. Things will go wrong. There's no doubt about it, you know? And yet we know that this will ultimately be better for individuals who need help in a crisis and for providers, really. I mean, we all want to do good work, you know. So, so that was that became the question for um, House Bill fifty eight thirty two: is how can we build a strong legal foundation to deliver this service so that potential providers aren't scared of doing it, you know, aren't afraid that this is going to be a lawsuit magnet, frankly, and um, we're not ready to open our doors. Some people were, a lot of people were were eyeing it, wishing they could, but not feeling comfortable. So that's that's when our work got started. So let's talk about the lawsuit magnet component for a minute because <laughs> uh, you're a JD and I was impressed with how you um, engaged certain groups or informed them before this went to the floor or you know before this was introduced. Tell us about that proactive process of you know who you engaged and why that might have saved a lot of headache and amendments and, you know, delays in in getting a bill like this passed? Yeah, well, we 
we did think it was the right thing to do and also the smart thing to do to talk to people who were going to be affected. Um, now, when you say we, who's the who's the group that's you know that's that's joining you or that you're you know participating in in this in this discussion? It was a small group of of providers. Actually, some of the providers who were already delivering this service. Okay big believers in something that wasn't as long-term or as intensive as a full inpatient stay, but knew, boy, we would be on better ground if we had a stronger legal foundation. Yes. So there were that, it was a small group. Some of the um, people who were in the group were um, affiliated with those organizations and then the Community Mental Health Association of Michigan. So the, um, the statewide body that all the CMHs are members of. Um, those, it, those were the main players in trying to craft this legislation. Okay. Yeah. And, and it was actually um, the Community Mental Health Association who over the years has worked through a lot of policy and legal issues who said, you know, let's talk to people who advocate around mental health issues and um, issues um, for individuals with disabilities and children now instead of waiting um, until it starts to maybe make headlines or hit other political newsreels and people are caught by surprise. And we all, everyone thought that was a good idea, not just to, have, to give them the heads up, but also because, of course, we're going to land on a better foundation if we have all the voices contributing ideas mm-hmm. that we, you know, if it was primarily led by providers, providers are not going to have all the ideas. Um, so it was a chance to get some input from folks who, um, who are more typically representing individuals who are needing the care and receiving the care. And how is that going? And how was that received? What kind of feedback did you get when you brought these ideas to you know, advocacy groups, uh, and, and did it change your approach or the language in the bill? It did. And it was a mixed bag. You know, there were, for one thing, I would say the, um, advocacy groups we talked with universally were really appreciative to be, um, at the table and, and talking through it. We didn't end up in complete alignment with, everything that was important to them, but we did change some things based on feedback we received. For example, a major issue um, in Michigan was going to be, to what extent, if at all, is restraint something that should be permitted in these settings as a last resort? It was really a difficult issue to consider. Um, the people who had been doing this type of service um, ha- were able to tell us that they do um, they had used restraint as a last resort, and they found that having that as a last resort enabled them to expand the population they're able to welcome into their doors to this type of service because um, as much as they use it much, much less than an emergency department setting, they were able to show data about how infrequently it actually is used. What they told the whole group was, if we didn't have that option, we would have to say no to a lot more people who could benefit from this service because ultimately they have to keep the whole setting safe. Yeah. So they're bearing some risk and they want to they want to have something in their pocket as a like you said as a last resort if if it has to be used but with the hopes that they don't and with plans that they don't i imagine collecting data looking mm-hmm. at restraint rates and things like that but it allows you to serve possibly more people if you have that as a as a last resort yeah they were quite passionate about they thought they could serve maybe a third of those presenting if they didn't have that as a last wow. resort which was significant you know when you yeah. think about wow, that cuts out a lot of people who could really benefit from this. And when they talked about how frequently they had to use restraint, they said it was maybe once a month. And so very, very minimal actual use of that type of restrictive intervention, but 
so ultimately that did impact how the legislation was pursued mm-hmm. to to say okay this is important if we want if we want to really touch the most people possible including those who are in serious distress this is an important component otherwise we are we're really limiting the slice of folks who might get to benefit from this and when you say advocacy organizations, like when I think of mental health advocacy, two, two entities come to mind nationally, NAMI mm-hmm. and Mental Health America. Mm-hmm. Were they at the table and also who else was? NAMI was at the table. Um, there's a, an association in Michigan. I think it's called the Men- Mental Health Association in Michigan. Um, we spoke with a children's advocacy group, and I am not going to get their name right, but there is there is a an advocacy group around mental health care for children specifically in Michigan. They were at the table. Um, what used to be known as the Michigan Protection and Advocacy Service, MPAS, um, and they do advocacy, of course, for individuals with all types of disabilities, um, and they're a federally charged body that does that in Michigan. They also recently changed their name, so I'm, I'm apologizing to them because I, I don't know it off the cuff. It's <laughs> okay. But... Um, a lot of so a number of groups that work at the statewide level were mm-hmm. engaged and and one of the actual takeaways was they said we don't we don't like the idea of expanding restraint period of course nobody really does but you have to kind of get into the reasons why and how that affects the total population that could be served but they said okay we kind of get where you're going with this and we we get that Um, hospital boarding is a horrible option and jail is a horrible option. So we like the idea that there's going to be an alternative. But if you're using restraint, it can't just be new, brand new organizations that have never worked with this population before. So they did, the the language that wound up in the legislation restricted use of restraint in, in CSUs to community mental health organizations who did have experience with this. Which is the, the, and those CMHs have a designated, you mentioned earlier, pre-screening unit function. And so it's the pre-screen, those who are designated the, the PSU function that can operate CSUs. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Yep. It's almost like you've read this legislation oh, before. Oh, man, it seems like, I know. <laughs> it's a nighttime reading in the past. Okay, so you, so you are building some consensus. You're talking to providers. You're talking to CMHs, which some CMHs are providers, right? Like, right, they, exactly. This, this is going to... Um, directly impact their ability possibly to, to operate these services. And then you get a bill drafted up, and then what happens next? Well, what happens next is quite a learning experience for me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is not the way that, um, that, you know, I hadn't done much of this work at all before. But we we did have a champion in the House of Representatives um, Representative Whiteford, who is interested in mental health, and she um, she got it what we were trying to accomplish, and is willing to sponsor the bill. So um, she brought it forth, and and then it it more or less went through the typical legislative steps, where it goes through committee in the House, House votes on it, um, goes through committee in the Senate, Senate votes on it. I think what was most amazing to me during the whole process, though, was the incredible bipartisan support for this concept. Hmm. Because, of course, Michigan is not, um, it, it's a very purple state, and um, and there's, a nationwide and also in our state, there's not a lot of consensus about anything. But there was widespread um, support for this bill, this concept. People were getting it. They were hearing that mental health is a major issue. Mental health crisis is an especially major issue. What we have isn't working. And it wound up, um, the final piece of legislation passed the Michigan Senate unanimously. And that was just amazing to me. When you think about this past year, that anything would pass unanimously, (laughs) you know? And hospital systems and health plans tend to be pretty powerful lobbyists, have pretty powerful lobbyists. And there are some, as you think philosophically or at a, at a large, a high level about um, changing the way crisis care has been delivered and moving it out of these 
maybe you'd call them power centers of emergency departments and psychiatric hospitals, um, that has a financial consequence to those who have been delivering care in those avenues, even if they haven't necessarily enjoyed it. You know, even if the boarding process is, is frustrating, they still get paid for that ED visit in a lot of cases. So that just strikes me that there could have been reasons. I, I think the, the whole crisis system is a series of incentives. And we, the hardest, the, the most resistant points are because people are highly incentivized to keep things as they, as they always have been. Um, so to, to, for people in some cases to look beyond their own financial gain or beyond their, their, their um, uh, maintain, maintenance of power to say, you know, what's more important is for people to get the care that they need. That's a great point, um, and one that informed the drafting of the legislation, too, was, of course, a lot of the initial stakeholders in that drafting group were tied to the public system, the CMH system, and yet the language came out with, hey, any organization can become a CSU. It was clear that you couldn't just make it an inpatient uh, setting mm-hmm. a CSU, but if you were an organization that ran a, a you know a variety of healthcare services, you can apply to be a CSU in Michigan. So it's not just um, t- it's not just tied to one payer source or one system, and that was really intentional um, intentional for buy in, but I think more importantly for what do we want this system to look like in Michigan? And if we really want to create a system that is not trying to sort people based on their insurance when they are, you know, knocking on the door for help in a crisis, then we should draft legislation that is broad and can apply in a lot of different settings. So if I understand this correctly, uh, the, the bill, it goes through the House, it goes through the Senate, and then it's um, and I don't want to rush through this, so if there's any details you want to come back to, like, <laughs> I'm going to make it sound like it was really simple. Uh, it, it goes through the Senate, and then it's signed by the governor just short of the end of 2020. Is that right? Like, right before the year ends? Yeah, I think it, it may have even technically been after the new year, but it was, um, you know, within the time allotment to sign the bill. So she, okay. she signs it, and it's now law. Okay. Um, and, and so then what, you know, like does suddenly does, you know, do you wake up and there's all these CSUs across the state the next day or like how, what, what else has to happen, if anything, to have CSUs uh, um, just like a familiar part of each community's crisis continuum in the state? Yeah, that's a great question. It's one of those, it's so interesting, you know, when you when you talk like you do to people all, all across the country about different crisis services, um, I imagine one thing you find is, well, they, they look very different depending on the regulatory background of each state. Mm-hmm. And that's also, of course, the case in Michigan. So um, in Michigan, it made the most sense to set up the service as one that gets certified by the Department of Health and Human Services, um, which is a little bit off the beaten path because a lot in healthcare is licensed. And this was very deliberately not a license, it's a certification, because uh, the Department of Health and Human Services right now is doing a lot of work on crisis and is very close to the work and, and is invested in getting it right. And um, in in conversation with them, it, it just made the most sense to get the most sort of clinically tailored and relevant standards to go that route. So that's what we did, or that's the way we wrote the language, and, and thankfully um, that's what others agreed to as well. So those have to get... Um, the certification standards have to get developed before anyone actually gets certified. Okay, because people always the the best. There are a lot of great ideas in crisis care, but the question always comes of like, who's going to pay for this, and how is it going to get paid, right? And is there going to be a, a fair reimbursement rate enough to cover this and enough to to make it worth someone's while to open one of these things? Right, and those are questions that. Um that are still out there, of course, because it's not all settled. Uh, it's sort of the beginning of setting a new landscape. Um, but there, 
things are pointing in the direction of we're going to figure this out in a comprehensive way. Um, that said, of course, the department um, is usually most keyed into what's going on on the Medicaid and uninsured side. And I think there's a lot of parallel efforts to try to engage, okay, if you are with a private payer or you want to deliver this service outside the public system, how can you do that in parallel so that there are revenue sources and it can, it can be um, realized? I, I don't want to skip over the point that you made about Michigan's Department of Health and Human Services making crisis systems and crisis services a priority. It's very encouraging to hear that and also to know that Michigan is moving in the direction of only a handful of other states that demonstrate this kind of leadership. Um, Wisconsin, Tennessee, uh, Texas come to mind where they have dedicated staff in their behavioral health administrations at the department level who are really focused on managing a crisis benefit, making sure that every community has one of each crisis service that they need, regular support calls, um, like a conference that's just focused on crisis providers. Um, but what, what, I, what you're telling me I know to be true, which is that there's a lot of growth happening in Michigan around additional mobile crisis teams. And, th and this actually stems back to a group that I imagine you were involved in, I want to say it was five years ago, maybe 2016 or so, called the Michigan Psychiatric admissions discussion, I believe, or my pad, uh, where some of these pe people were having some of the same questions. It started maybe at an at administrative level, but then providers were brought in to say, um, man, maybe we could do this better. Maybe we could standardize medical clearance across the state, or we could, uh, if you were, in, were you involved in that? And if so, like, did you follow one of the four or five paths that the state had set out of, of like work groups? You know, I wasn't directly involved, but I was tracking the conversations. And I think you're right. I think th those were some of the seeds for what we're seeing today is people were exploring what's working and what's not working with psychiatric access right now. And then, well, what are the alternatives and what could get us to a different place in the state? And, you know, it's really encouraging. And, and I really have to... Um, I have to hand it to the state and have a lot of respect for them because it's a lot to bite off all this crisis stuff. One of the issues that came up in, in the legislation was, well, is there going to be an appropriation tied to this? If that was a requirement, it probably wouldn't have passed. But what we got was a law and a whole lot of work now for, yeah. <laughs> you know, for people to do and and likely not not enough resources to get it done, uh, um, at least at least not in a super quick way. And so I, I really appreciate the department keeping on this path. They're, they're clearly committed. They want to see this for the state, even though it's a daunting challenge, you know. Mm -hmm. I want to change highways a little bit and talk about how you got here. Have you had a, um, a lifelong desire to work in like public service or healthcare or anything, you know, maybe, th maybe this is a variation on the, what, what did you want to be when you grew up kind of question, but, um, yeah, tell me how you got here. How did, how are you now, you know, do you have such a heart for crisis services and, and are dedicating all of your energy ex and experience? Like where did this come from? Give us some of the backstory. I was thinking about this. Well, how, how did I start? thinking about these topics. And if you want to know the, the very beginning of all of it, mm -hmm. it was, um, I remember when I was a kid, my dad saying, well, we have an unlisted phone number. And um, he then had to explain that the reason we had an unlisted phone number, which was kind of, um, kind of she-she back then, and <laughs> um, the reason was, was because he worked at the state psychiatric hospital. And um, sometimes people in crisis would want to contact their social worker at all odd hours or what have you. And that, that wasn't the person for them to be contacting under that system. And so we, he, you know, paid to have the number unlisted so that, you know, we wouldn't have those calls to our home. 
But that was my first experience with, oh, you know, there are people in crisis. My dad works with them. And there's this thing called the psychiatric hospital. I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and there's still a psychiatric hospital there just, just a couple of miles from my parents' home. Um, so that was the beginning of what is a behavioral health crisis and how might people get involved. I love that. And I want you to go on, but I also want to tell you that we are in a club because I was also in the unlisted phone number club. My dad was a city attorney ah. for 30 years. And so our phone number would either be listed under my mom's name or it would just be listed with an initial. So Yes. Yes. yes that's funny. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I have to say my dad probably did have a big impact on my uh, choice to go into social work because he was a social worker. Um, and I think always was able to open, open all of our eyes to the fact that some people have really complex lives. Actually, all of us have lives with really complex moments sometimes, but, um, there are people in our communities who have systematically complex lives because of the way our society works and the way our systems are. And, um, so that was, I guess that was instilled at a young age. And then, you know, went through the usual stuff, went to college and, and grad school. And, and I guess I just always kept that, that idea of, um, it's a, it's a good thing to try to help the people who live with you in your community. And so I had a, I got a law degree and a social work degree and I actually figured, well, someone will hire me. I've got two degrees, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, but but wound up doing work that feels like it's a good fit for some of those values that were instilled early on. Mm-hmm. That's great. Okay, so you get these two degrees, and then do you jump into behavioral health, or do you do something else? Uh, practice law for a couple of years, uh, doing estate planning. They thought that was a good fit for the social work, which kind of it, it was. Honestly. Did you say estate planning? Estate planning, okay. wills and trusts, and yeah. you know that sort of stuff. Um, and that was great experience. You know, um, the law degree does come in handy, even though I haven't actively practiced for a while. And then, you know, really decided that in my heart, I'm a social worker. And so the, the initial transition from practicing law was the child welfare system. I worked in um, a family preservation program, home-based family preservation program. So in some ways, it runs parallel to what the CMH system is now put into place because mm -hmm. it's a 24-7 program. It's called Families First. It's actually been up and running also for a long time in Michigan. I want to say 30 years or more. Um, but, you know, some of the same values ran through that program. The idea was get to people when they're in a crisis, give them what they need, and almost every time they're able to stabilize and they don't have to have the risk of having their family um, disrupted or a child removed or, or something like that. It, that program has a remarkable track record. It's also very intensive. It's expensive. If you don't think about it in terms of what could happen if we didn't do this, it doesn't make sense because it's outrageously yeah. expensive and demanding. But if you don't do it, you wind up with a lot of kids getting removed from their homes. And in that context, it makes all the sense in the world. Prevention as savings, at, right. right? Like that, like human saving, like human suffering savings, maybe financial savings, or or just headaches. The message, the parallel that I hear you saying with crisis care is keep people where they are. If you can provide an intervention that leads to a healthier environment, you know, remove people from their environment for as little time as possible get people back to the, the, the home, assuming that there can be some level of functionality and health and safety there and, and try your best not to mess that up. That's right. Yeah. Hmm. So then how do you go from families first to special projects? Well, it turns out, um, I'm probably a much better thinker than I am a clinician. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, you know, I was learning that about myself, um, learning so many things, actually, in that Families First program. But after doing it for four years, I was really interested in doing policy work, program work, system-level work, 
Um, and I do think that the law degree helped shape that, helped shape my thinking and, and my skills. So I started looking for opportunities, and um, lo and behold, there was this systems-level planning job at Network 180, and mm-hmm. that's kind of, you know, the beginning of where we started this conversation yeah. is that, that job. I often think that crisis work, whether you're in at the system level or the service level, it's just not for the faint of heart. Um, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's very deficit based. You try to fix one big problem and then maybe you also try to fix another big problem or maybe you fix the problem and then that brings on new problems. Um, I've often, um, been a little jealous of my friends who are like event planners or have something that at least at the, when it's all said and done, it's like it either has closure or it causes people to be in like celebration, you know, like a wedding or a, a big birthday party. And not that those things don't come without their own set of stressors, some of which I would maybe never want to uh, take on myself. But how do you um, demonstrate or exercise fortitude and optimism maybe you don't i don't know but i'm assuming you do from what i know about you how do you how do you exercise those virtues or the the resilience amidst a lot of bad news and a a pretty a pretty steep uh you know road in front of you on a regular basis it's a great question and i have to say i think the people who are true champions at those skills are the ones who are clinically delivering the service because um, the stress of being in the moment with someone in a crisis is unique and different than um, what I usually face day to day working at more of a planning level. But I remember when <laughs> when I was doing more of the direct work, um, and my husband is a special ed teacher, so the two of us here we are, you know, <laughs> working on pretty intense types of services for the community with intense needs and and needs that don't always resolve quickly or well. And we decided to buy a rental property. And we would go over there and we would paint the walls. And we'd say, hey, look, when we got here today, that wall was a different color. <laughs> it has changed. It's done. No. Um, it's, a, it's funny, but it's sort of true, I think, um, it really does help to to do grounding activities that are very different than working on human problems. Um, that helps. Um, but I also, I, I guess maybe some would say I'm a Pollyanna. I don't know. I, I really, um, I have lots of optimism that if people get a little support at the right time, or maybe a lot of support at the right time, the, the results can be so dramatically different and better. And um, if you really believe that, then it's not so hard to pursue all this work because you know at the end of the day it's going to be so much better for so many people. I like that. Everyone has their role in a crisis system, you know, and, and sometimes maybe we wish we were in a different role because then we could have a different kind of influence or maybe we we have the way I describe it sometimes in the work I've done is when I exchange one set of problems for another, you know, when you move into like a policy level because you think you can, you know, maybe you wager that you can have an influence on the system in a different way. How, what kind of tension do you live in, in your job? And how do you manage that as it pertains to, to, to crisis uh, service improvements, you know, when you probably have a lot of things swirling around your head, mm-hmm. you know, um, you've got, um, provider experience, person served experience, um, financial considerations. Like, I don't know. How do you, how do you stay, how do you stay in that sweet spot that you want to of like being effective and kind of almost, uh, exercising the, the serenity prayer of, mm. of knowing what you can control and what you can't. Ooh, these are these are great questions. They're kind of deep. Um, <laughs> well, the the honest answer is I certainly don't always, and then I learn from it a lot. Um, and you know, I come from a culture that wants a lot of bang for its buck. I'll own it. We 
we want a lot of value for every ounce of resource that's invested. And I have always, I think that's baked in my, in who I am. And so when I think about serving the public good, I, I just think, well, they, they deserve every ounce. You know, the, the public deserves really, really committed public servants who really, you know, are, are doing their very best and giving every ounce of themselves. So I, I do really believe that. Um, and I have gotten burned more than once by giving more ounces than I have. Uh. <laughs> and, and then you realize, oh, my gosh, I am hurting the system or people by mm-hmm. over, you know, having expectations of myself that I really can't do. And so slowly, slowly but surely, you know, um, I think I've learned to go at the speed of the people who are partnering around the table. And it's hard because sometimes you want a result that is different than, than what is the speed of, of the stakeholders. Um, and to be present and, and to do things like, you know, everyone's doing this these days, but practice meditation. I go on a walk every day. You know, the, the classic things that help you no matter what job you're in. Um, because if you start racing around, ultimately it ends up in a worse result. And you, and you go, if you go faster than the system is going, there's always going to be a lot of wasted energy. So, yeah, it's almost like there's a treadmill speed that you can kind of feel in order to be effective. And if you walk faster than the treadmill speed, you're going to stub your toe on the front of it. And if you walk well, actually, how would that go? <laughs> what would, yeah, if you walk slower, you're going to fall off the back of it. Yeah. And so you got to, you got to feel the rhythm. Yeah. Mm. What do you do, Travis? Cause you're involved in seeing all these systems change oh, all man. the time. Well, um, I think Viktor Frankl really helps. I think like <laughs> existentialism is one of my antidotes mm. because, um, it's amazing. Like I'm, I'm, I'll never cease to be amazed at the resiliency of humans mm-hmm. and how we can, we can work out of very dark and, and bleak situations and we can help one another to, to get out of those situations. I think, um, I think an individualistic mentality over decades and hundreds of years has poisoned our ability to help each other. And that's a lot of what we're fighting. And we don't, um, I, I often say that people treat mental illness like it's contagious, like it's leprosy and they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to acknowledge what's happening with someone they care about because they're afraid they might show weakness or it's going to happen to them too. If they get too close, if they, if they, you know, if they touch that person, so to speak. And I just think that's garbage. I think <laughs> that I think that if we can all acknowledge and appreciate like our own brokenness, like that's part of what makes us human. And we we have a lot in common. And anybody that's being expected to hold up this this air or this um this persona um after a while it gets pretty heavy. It gets pretty hard to do. So I, I got to tell you that um, one of the reasons I started this podcast was because I knew that there was amazing stories of people that worked in the field hmm. that like that basically make crisis services work and their spirit is contagious. And I, I've never been um, I've never been so inspired by a group of people. Hmm. I don't think as I have maybe musicians, you know, I know your husband's a musician. Yeah. Um, the, the, the fire of musicians also, uh, inspires me, but, um, I, I'm just struck that every day people can make an active choice to walk into the fire, to walk into a really dire situation. And they've got a little bit of a clinical tool belt and a big heart and, and sometimes personal experience and they just walk into that every day not and not in the sense of trying to be a savior you know i'm not trying to to create this this unnecessary chasm between helper and helpy but uh it's a beautiful thing it's a it's a beautiful thing that people dedicate their lives to service and it's just as important in my mind well 
let's get the let's get the service right first. It's incredibly important that the people who are in crisis um, get the best that we have to offer as people mm-hmm. because we would hope that the system would be ready for us if we had to use it if, exactly. if it was you know but then once we get that right let's make sure that the people who are dedicating their lives to that um, are given a fair chance to be helpful mm-hmm. that if they if we want them to practice some kind of evidence-based therapy that we give them the training and the tools and the capacity the, you know the vacation time to go mm-hmm. in and and do that um and that we can just honor them in the same way that they're honoring the communities that they serve. You know, that's the, if at the end of my career, if those things were happening, I'd be pretty excited. Seriously. Um, yeah, I don't. And, and I'm like, you. I mean, I'm finding even more things about you and me that we have in common, but like I am an eternal optimist <laughs> and it, I think I have to be because the, because things could quickly bring me down mm. if I didn't try to bring that to work every day and say that, you know, I hope that this is going to be better. You know, I not only do I have hope, I have calculated hope or I have, yeah. you know, informed hope that this is going to be better. Yeah. It, on some really basic level, I guess it comes down to believing in the power of people, yes. uh, you know, to be resilient and to be to be agents of change. And if you've seen it happen even just once, then you know it, it's there. Mm-hmm. And that that's what makes you think, oh, we could do a lot better. And it wouldn't even take that much. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You just, you, you, you hit something that resonates with me a lot, which is that like, there's just power in a, in a relationship, in a connection. Mm-hmm. And we strip that away too much. We, we don't make it just about the connection. We, we, you know, you, you got to fill out this, this assessment form first before you can connect with this person. Then you got to have a pretty fast discharge summary because the how the the health plan isn't going to pay for them to be in here for two weeks. You know, mm-hmm. and we 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 disincentivize relationship. I don't mean you know unprofessional relationships, but that even that gets in the way a little bit when you just think that people can't connect with each other or they can't share a a, a human moment together without you know something going on. Um, that's why I'm like such a big advocate about peer services and about, um, uh, like the psychosocial component of, of healing that, you know, my, these meds are going to help me to not be depressed, but they're not going to give me a social life. You know, mm-hmm. they're not going to make me feel isolated or uh, feel less isolated. And, um, there's, we have gotten away from those things that we have found to be truly powerful and transformative mm-hmm. And I hope we get back there. And I hope we don't just look at what the system is currently paying for to dictate mm-hmm. what it what it needs. Mm-hmm. Um, because we could we could just do so much better, you know. And I don't want to say that for a long time. I want to say you know that was that was the case, and now we are doing better. Yes. Um, but it, it's going to take some vulnerable hearts. It's going to take people at all different kinds of levels to be honest and and open and vulnerable. And who knows? Maybe the pandemic helped us to take a step in that direction. I, I, I've, I, now you got me going, but uh-huh. I've never, I've never seen people so comfortable with each other mm. as I have on Zoom calls in like the last twelve months. You know, it, yeah. and it's just like, oh, like we can be human. We don't have to like hold up this facade of like how we're supposed to be, and you know, we don't have to apologize for our kids interrupting anymore. It's just like, I'm at home. This is what's, you know, this is how it is. And you've, you know, and yours just did them fi- did the same thing five minutes ago. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just go, okay, maybe, maybe we can, we can let our guard down a little bit and have some conversations that are going to really impact this in a positive way. Yeah. I think, I think there's more willingness to try things because we've had to try things and it wasn't that bad. I mean, (laughs) sometimes it was, but but sometimes it Uh wasn't that bad. And I think, um, you were just talking about where are we making our investments and the tendency to to sort of reinvest in all the, the same old places. And it's always been, you know, kind of stunning to me how we think so hard about adding peers or, you know, in like, Let's add more of this level of stuff. Oh, I don't know if we can. I don't know if we can. <laughs> yes. And I think, my goodness, 
you know, that's just, that's like two or three hospital stays. You can pay for a, an yeah, entire staff or entire program. You know, what are we doing? Is this really that big of a risk at the end of the day? But I do think you're, you're right that the climate has changed and people are, um, are more open to asking questions. And maybe, maybe things that felt like a risk are feeling less like a risk now and in a good way. I have one more question for you, and that is, what are you most hopeful about this year? And it could be, I'll just, I'll just leave it open. Sometimes I qualify statements to questions too much. So what are you most hopeful about this year? Most hopeful about this year. Or that's a lot of pressure. What is something you are hopeful about this year? <laughs> I think the wheels are starting to move in Michigan in crisis service. I think they're starting to move in a lot of places, but this is the place where I experience it. And it is so exciting, honestly, to know that so many people are making this a priority and a focus. I don't know where it's all going to end, but um, for a long time, it felt like there were like a, a couple of us that just kept beating the drum and and we kept doing it again and again and again and it was fine because you know it's got a good beat but <laughs> <laughs> but um something shifted and it became not just uh an individual passion or a or one organization it became a statewide conversation and a policy conversation and it's that shift from individual change to system change which is great for crisis services but it's it's also kind of great just to watch a movement happen you know to watch something go from very grassroots and organic feeling to wow this could this could be a real thing in a significant way in a you know across the state so yeah and i think it's i think it's hopefully something we can all be proud of Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way that we might have heard, like, our grandparents or something talk about, like, the labor movement or about, like, the disability movement. Like, mm -hmm. what if what if we had a chance to be a part of something that people take for granted in, in 25 years? Right. You know, but we, but we just got to be a part of the hard work that made that happen. Yeah. If this becomes boring because it's so commonplace, yes. that would be a trial. Oh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> yeah. Beverly, thank you so much for being here with me today on the podcast. It was just a pleasure having you. Well, likewise, thank you, Travis, for um, getting excited about all this stuff because it's been a wonderful opportunity to um, talk with a kindred spirit. Absolutely. Thank you to my guest, Beverly Risecamp. To learn more about Network 180, visit network180.org. Don't forget to give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 